Hello, everyone. Hello. Is everyone comfortable? We're so happy to see all of you here tonight. This is a terrific turnout. Um, I just wanted to say welcome. Welcome to the National Academy Museum and School of Fine Art. My name is Sandy Martini. I'm the Director of Education here at the Academy. Um, I'm just going to remind you about a few housekeeping details. Um, maybe you've seen it on your way in. The restroom is in the back on your left. Um, I'll ask you to turn off your cell phones. Uh, and if you want to be reminded about future programs, please make sure that we have your email address. Um, you probably gave it already on your way in, but if you didn't, there'll be an opportunity for you to give us that information on your way out. Um, and at the end of the program, we'll all, the museum is open until 9 o'clock tonight. I invite you to take a look at our exhibition. And the exit for tonight's program will be through the front. Some of you may be familiar with um, previous programs we left through the school entrance. But tonight, because the museum is open, we can all leave in style through the museum entrance. Um, now I got that out of the way. Uh, what I'd like to do now is tell you a little bit about what I do here. It's my pleasure to organize the public programs that interpret exhibitions, like the one um, Gee, I didn't bring the pamphlet. <laughs> Maybe you saw it at the front desk. It's, uh, it's in relationship to our current exhibition, um, Reconfiguring the Body in American Art. Again, I wanted to mention the museum's open till 9 tonight and every Friday throughout the exhibition. So I hope you'll have some time later to see the show or come back another time. Next Friday on October 2nd, there'll be a panel discussion featuring our four next-to-generation artists from the exhibition who all explore the nature of the human body in different ways. Moderated by National Academy Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art, Marshall Price, who's in the house. Where's Marshall? <laughs> He'll be your host um, next week. Um, the panel features Wei Dong, Alyssa Monks, Jenny Dubnow, and Deborah Hampton. Tonight um, marks the first review panel of the season. We've been putting these programs on. How long, David? Sorry? How long have you been doing the review panels? Uh, I think we're in the sixth season, is that correct? We're in the sixth season. That's really great. Um, these programs, by design, do not specifically address our exhibitions, but they reach instead out into a larger world of contemporary art to participate in the ongoing dialogue that interests artists and those who love art here in New York. Um, they often, but do not always, address the work of artists who are affiliated with the National Academy. Tonight is a treat for us because the panel will discuss the work of Maya Lin, who is an academician, as well as that of Kahindi Wiley, who's not an academician, but his work is in the exhibition upstairs. I hope you get a chance to see that. The review panel is a joint presentation with Art Critical. Um, and the National Academy Museum, Art Critical archives recordings of past review panels, which can be accessed by you at artcritical.com backslash review panel. I want to thank Graham White, 
He's our recording engineer for making these um, recordings. He's in the back. He just raised his hand. Graham, thank you. Uh, he's the one who we can thank for having these recorded for posterity. Um, and also, I would like to acknowledge the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs and the New York State Council on the Arts for supporting, supporting our public programming. The review panel is a brainchild of tonight's moderator and every review panel moderator, David Cohen. David is the gallery director at the New York Studio School and editor and publisher of artcritical.com. So now I'm going to turn the microphone over to David. So please um, give me a warm welcome to David and our distinguished panel. Thank you very much indeed, Sandy, and, and thanks to all your colleagues here at the National Academy. I'd, I'd name Mary Fichter, the Director of Communications, and Marshall Price, and, and, and others for, for really making the, this event possible. Um, uh, don't need to mention how heartening and warming it is for anybody sitting up here to see uh, such a crowd. Of course, each individual on this panel thinks it's a reflection of their own fan club, but um, um, uh, let's think also that it's the, the collective uh, hunger in New York City for intelligent debate about contemporary art. Um, I'd also like to say how, how warming and gratifying it is to see uh, so many uh, past members of this panel coming back to sit in the audience. Um, uh, I see Stephen Main, Mario Navis. Um, uh, who else do I see? Tell me who I see. I see Carol Deal. Excellent. And um, good. Welcome back to everybody. Oh, I also see Jennifer Riley, who appeared in our Brooklyn special some while back. Okay, great. Now, the review panel. First of all, my <coughs> most pleasurable task is to introduce you uh, to our uh, panelists this evening. Um, from my far left, David Brody is an artist. He makes uh, paintings, wall drawings, and digital animations. He's had recent solo shows at Pierogi and Pierogi's uh, Pierogi Leipzig, um, and has uh, shown work in the past at the Reina Sofia Museum in Madrid, the Brooklyn Museum, the Drawing Center, MoMA, <coughs> and uh, other venues. Uh, he uh, will be showing works on paper in uh, November, at Jankar McCorkle uh, Projects in Los Angeles. Uh, David is a stalwart reviewer at artcritical.com, and uh, besides that August journal, has also written for Cabinet Magazine, Fence, The Brooklyn Rail, and Pierogi Press, as well as catalog essays for Jane Fine, Brenda Goodman, and Caroline Fox. Uh, David uh, has taught for a number of years at the uh, graduate program at uh, the Maryland Institute uh, College of Art, MICA, in Baltimore. Um, Linda Nocklin is uh, a doyen of the art historical profession and uh, acknowledged by many as uh, one of the uh, pioneers, if not the pioneer, of feminist art history, uh, which she launched with that seminal article in Art News back in 1971. Germinal. Hello? Journal. Germinal. Germinal. Germinal, not seminal. <laughs> ah, yes, seminal, of course, is... Uh, is a sexist term. It does uh, assume the male, and germinal is, uh, yes, right. Intervening in the text as it's being written, that's the way to, to change the course of thinking. The germinal text, uh, why have there been no great women artists? 
Um, she's the author of, uh, she is, um, we should say that she is the, uh, she's currently on uh, sabbatical as uh, uh, Lily Atchison Wallace, Professor of Modern Art at uh, New York University at the Institute of Fine Arts. Um, she's taught at uh, many d distinguished institutions and she's the author of books uh, including, uh, of course, uh, uh, Courbet, uh, Realism, Bathers, Bodies and Beauty, um, uh, Women, Art and Power and other essays, The Politics of Vision, essays on 19th century art and society uh, representing women. And she has also uh, been the subject of um, a germinal or seminal uh, festschrift, <laughs> take your pick. Its uh, authors uh, belong to both uh, persuasions. Um, uh, Self and History, a tribute to Lyndon Nocklin, published in 2000. And David Carrier is um, uh, an academic in both disciplines of philosophy and art history. He has his uh, PhD in philosophy from uh, uh, Columbia. And um, his um, position, I think, possibly created for him, is that correct? Yeah. Uh, the, um, uh, as, as uh, Champney uh, family uh, professor, uh, is, is a position shared between Case Western Reserve University and the Cleveland Institute of Art, uh, reflecting his unique fusion of the activities of aesthetics and art criticism. Um, uh, David uh, is the author of such uh, um, tomes as Art Writing, Principles of Art History Writing, The Aesthete in the City, The Philosophy and Practice of American Abstract Painting in the 1980s, a um, couple of books on Poussin, uh, High Art, Charles Baudelaire and the Origins of Modernism, uh, and Rosalind Krauss uh, the, and uh, American Philosophical Art Criticism from Formalism to Beyond Postmodernism, and most recently, uh, um, uh, a fascinating small book, uh, Proust slash, uh, sorry, Warhol slash Proust. Um, uh, and also, he's the author of The World Art History. Uh, and he's just back from China, where he's been a Fulbright uh, scholar and teaching at uh, the University of Tsinghao, the national, and also the National um, Academy of Art in Beijing. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our panelists. Tell me if it's your first time here at the review panel. Put your hand up if, you, if, you, uh, if we're, we're enjoying your company for the first time. Excellent. Wonderful. Uh, let me just tell you then uh, the structure of this evening. Uh, we're reviewing, as you no doubt know, four exhibitions, uh, the work of Janine Antoni, Maya Lin, Chris Ophelia, and Kahinda Wiley. Uh, what we do is we see a little um, video of an installation of their exhibition, um, just to remind those of you who've managed to see the show, what it looked like, and give you a taste of that show to those who have not. Um, all the shows are open at least until tomorrow. That's a, a rule of the review panel, is that... Uh, uh, we don't discuss anything that you don't have 24 hours more to go and look at. Um, so you can decide for yourself, as it were. Um, so um, uh, how many of you have seen two or more of the exhibitions we're going to talk about? Excellent. Well, as this is a new season, I'll indulge in the once-per-season joke that that's the same average as the panel, so it should be a very lively evening. Um, 
The last thank you before we get down to business is to, is to thank James Calm, who took the videos that we're going to be uh, seeing. This is an innovation. Those of you who have been to the panel in the past have been suffering with static imagery, and we now join the 21st century and give you moving imagery, for better or worse. And um, uh, that's uh, therefore, so just the format, we're going to look at a show, discuss it, look at another show, discuss it, take some comments from the audience, two more shows, one more set of comments, and you'll be, still be in time for an Upper East Side dinner. So that is the format for the review panel. Let's get down to business and look at the work of Kehinda Wiley. Ah, I'm talking as if somebody else should be doing something, and in fact it's me who should be doing something. Good. Excellent. Let's have the lights back. And um, 
and let's let's get down to business. Um, Linda, um, looks like a new chapter to realism might be required. Uh, here, here we have an artist who's steeped in uh, uh, um, art history and to the extent that uh, all of these works cite art historical precedents, not a few of them to be found in, in some of your own um, books. Perhaps your volumes uh, grace the shelves of Kahinda's, um, uh, Kahinda Wiley's uh, studio library. Um, what sort of use do you feel he's making of art history? What is the connection with art history? Um, well, I like to look at it the, in the opposite way. Right now, I'm interested in how the art of the present makes me re-see the art of the past. And um, Kahinda is an important figure in this process of re-envisioning. And I think... Um, I cannot look at Angles in the same way, having seen uh, Kahinda Wiley. And I shouldn't. I shouldn't. I mean, I think we all do see through the eyes of the present, even if we pretend we don't. I think it's good to acknowledge the impact that the, the, today's art has on the past. It makes us see the kitsch that existed uh, in the 19th century, before the word kitsch perhaps was invented, how artists, well, even before the 19th century, like Titian, um, uh, like, uh, well, <coughs> I don't know, like uh, Van Dyke and so on, I mean, they were there to make aristocrats look aristocratic. You've all seen aristocrats with pot bellies and short necks and stupid expressions. Um, but th these artists were there, among other things, to as skillfully as possibly, and with as much elan and uh, a great pleasure. I'm not saying they did this, you know, uh, putting themselves down and saying, oh dear, I have to make this dog look like an angel. No, I think they took great pleasure in seeing how they could elevate, how they could beautify. I think of Ingres painting the Comtesse d'Ossonville, that wonderful painting uh, at the Frick Collection. Now, the Comtesse d'Ossonville was a famous intellectual, and she wrote some very famous history books. But Ingres made sure she was not sullied or with the pale cast of thought, I can assure you. Um, he made her look as stupid and banal and fashionable and elegantly clad, think of the shimmer of that satin as possible. And I think Kahinda Wiley has learned the lesson. I mean, he's learned how you, how, however, in his case, it makes his, his figures look even more contemporary, more perhaps out of sync with those backgrounds and poses, more of their own time than they might have been without it. So I think, uh, I want to recast your question and say that, yes, Kahinda Wiley makes me think history differently. And uh, salute to him. I think that that's a very important task. Well, I, I, would, I, I think I would concur that, that when, artists, when artists of today uh, recycle uh, or cannibalize or make use of art of the past, they, they inevitably, at some level, contribute to a canon. And, force a rethinking uh, of what's happened in the past. It doesn't necessarily dictate the way we think about the past. But I do f want to stick by my original question, because uh, while we can acknowledge and salute uh, Wiley for having us rethink uh, 
Jato, Titian, and Angre. Um, we're looking at something today, and now what, what, are, what are Jato, Titian, and Angre doing for Kahinda Wiley? Uh, uh, Miss Professor Carrier, I'm afraid I can't call David and David, David and David, otherwise we're going to have a very confusing <laughs> evening. So, yeah. especially yeah. if they start yeah. coming back to David. So, yeah. uh, David C. Well, I just saw the show in an interesting way. I came to the show first, walked through it, and then thought, oh, I'm not sure I get it. Let's go have a cup of coffee. I came back. And when I came back, there was the list showing the sources that you saw in the, in the video here, which otherwise wasn't there. And I guess I should have figured that out because in the painting after Pontormo, there's a Latin text held at the bottom. But what interested me was that the show looked completely different. I don't think it was the coffee. I think it was completely different seeing those sets of references. And I thought, this is very interesting. If I had time, I would want to go you know, on Google and look at the sources and see how he's used the source one by one. It's interesting that in the catalog, they list the sources, but they don't actually picture them. And I think it would be great fun to go through, because some of them are not such famous paintings that immediately say, oh, yes, Reynolds, this and that. I think that's one thing. I think the way that he puts on those patterns and imposes, that obviously is something new in his technique. So I think that the real interesting questions about how he uses and transforms those sources. Yes. Um, and David uh, Brody, um, is, this, is, is, is the use exclusively of black male uh, models for his uh, images simply a reflection of this particular artist's particular social circle, or is it, uh, uh, is it uh, axiomatic? Is it, is it, in a way, what the well, work's about? It's both. He's, he's certainly a celebrity within hip-hop hip -hop culture at this point, and if you were... Um, you know, some kid in the Fulton Mall, and, and Kinda Wiley said, would you like, you know, you got me to paint your portrait, come and select a pose from my, one of my art history books, uh, you know, people would jump at the chance. Uh, so um, that is his milieu, he's made it his milieu, he's as much a celebrity as anyone that he's painting now. And, uh, but it's also uh, the great opportunity of this work for all of us is that he's bringing these, these distant planets into close rotation. So now, as a bourgeois white you know, gallery goer, uh, many of us would fit that description, I think, can go into that gallery and really look at these faces of these, of these young black men that, that uh, you know, we can't look at in, in the Fulton Mall. And they can't look at us. And we can also, if we are so inclined, maybe hang out in the studio and become part of the sort of factory-like Warholian factory party that's going on there. It's mixing genres just the way that uh, Warhol was mixing characters from uh, Hubert Selby Jr. novels and uh, Cheever novels and you know Bellow novels or whatever. So it's a kind of revolution that's happening in this work. It's it's remarkable. It's it's um, and it's an, it's a great opportunity, and I think we should all be very grateful for it. Uh, I want to. It hasn't been remarked yet. I'm sure that what, what everyone's going to get around to it. But of course, this is not a show that's like his previous shows. It's a show of digital collage photography. And um, an issue has been raised before of you know, why is he even bothering to paint? Because the paintings reduce the difference between a Van Dyke and an Ang to uh, an affectless kind of uh, flat photorealism. So what's the point? Well, of course, there is a point he's, he's saying that, these, that the myth of the masterwork is 
nothing is not interesting or not as important as the rhetoric behind it. And he's also saying that it's all bling of a certain kind, right? Because the, the studio process, I gather he has a lot of assistants working for him, but I'm not sure about that, uh, is just about sort of the labor that goes into making these very polished, um, elegant surfaces, and then they become a kind of luxury item. It's, it is basically kind of a Warholian take on paint. But uh, this, this show is challenging that, because in fact, the, there's one painting on paper there that mm -hmm. is far less uh, impressive than the photograph that it's based on. I have much personally find myself having this incredible sort of current of transfer with the face of that young man in a way that in the photograph, or I should say the photo collage, that I don't get in the painting. Mm. Um, yeah. And just looking at the painting upstairs, it is, it is a painting that, as Roberta Smith wrote somewhere of a previous show, uh, you know, it looks better in reproduction than in real life. Yeah. Uh, but she also said in that review of a show that unfortunately I didn't see, uh, it was at the Studio Museum in Harlem, that um, he was beginning to paint flesh that you can't stop looking at. So right. maybe he is going in two different directions. He's putting the, the photo collages out there as mm -hmm. objects in and, of, in and of themselves, and I would suggest he could make them bigger okay. and he could include props. Yes. So, uh, Linda, from, taking out from what uh, David Brody is saying there, which is, the, which is the aspect that most differentiates a Kahinda Wiley photo collage from the art historical uh, source that it um, uh, extrapolates. Is it the um, contemporary costume and the use of young black men, or is it the, um, um, the transfer of medium from... Uh... I think it's the, f the fact that it's a big photograph, mm -hmm. and you're aware of that right away. I mean, it's something that we should be aware of in the much-adulated Van Meer show that's looking at, we're looking at now. I mean, I am one of the few people who admit to not liking Vermeer. Um, but, and I don't like it because it's so slick, it's so sweet, it's just what the 19th century wanted from a, a respectable Dutch painter. It's almost as though they made him up and Torre Berger sort of did. But um, nobody mentions in any of the reviews that he was using a camera obscura to obtain those wonderful, super realist effects. And, um, you know, I, I wonder how far from contemporary large-scale photography we are, we are straying in that case. Maybe there's more closeness mm -hmm. uh, to Kahinda uh, Wiley than we really want to think. But, um, I think it is the fact that it's a photograph, and I think it's different from his previous work insofar as we are aware that this mm -hmm. is a photograph with a lot of wallpaper mm -hmm. inter intercepted in between the object and yes. the subject. Yes. And I think that that awareness, that, that sense of, of artifice as masquerading as reality or reality masquerading as artifice is what gets mm -hmm. us really mm. involved in these in these mm. images. Yes, technically, David mm. Carrier, that, that is surely what's the, 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 the abrasion in these images, as much as the dislocation of contemporaneity and, and, and history, black and white, is a question of uh, reality artifice now. But also, there's a question, isn't there, of the perhaps, perhaps a gender issue, in that the, um, these are uh, black men, and uh, the decoration that they're interspersed with is uh, is like a, almost sort of Klimtian and a sort of uh, uh, 
evocation of the, the dainty, the pretty. Yeah. Uh, what's yeah. happening with that? What's that about? Yeah, I think that dainty decorative layer imposed is interesting because that certainly plays these issues of artifice and you wonder. There's one thing else we might mention is that when you enter the gallery, there is the first almost nude on the right and I guess that's the sign that this yes. has something to do with classical art. Whereas when you go into the back into the main room and you see the portraits, mm, it's not so obvious. And I think the back room, you could say a group of portraits without recognizing all the sources. Mm -hmm. Could I jump in for a second? Yeah, please. I think, uh, I guess it does have to do with classical art, but I think that the main meaning of that image for me is that he's, uh, he's coming out and saying this is about homoeroticism. Uh -huh. It's a very homoerotic image. It's, yeah, yeah. it's almost cheesecake, and yeah, it's yeah, beautiful. Yeah. It's a beautiful yeah. photograph, yeah. digital. I don't think it's even altered. And then you begin to notice that some of the, the poses that are being taken by these young men are the poses of women. And mm -hmm. uh, so Linda's the expert on the portrayal of women in 19th, 18th century art, but I, if I can quote you, you, you know, basically the, the options are limited to... Um, um, submission, um, was it sexual availability, and passivity. So why are, you know, what's going on there is a question that, that all of a sudden we have to ask. And I had an email correspondence with a former student of mine, um, a very, very interesting black uh, woman artist, I won't mention her name because she didn't want me to, who said that within the hip-hop world there's, um, you know, she thinks that they were not getting the joke, but they're going to get the joke now, mm -hmm. you know. The joke being um, that there's a soft underbelly to the bravado and the braggadocio of mm -hmm. hip-hop culture with its misogyny and, and homophobia and uh, you know, the comparison with the European aristocracy. Maybe, maybe he's also saying in, in regard to fashion and the floral decoration that there's something irreducibly gay about paying that much attention to what you're wearing. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that, I mean, well, I'll, I'll stop there. These are contemporary swagger portraits, then. Like those uh, yeah. men in their cod pieces in the Renaissance paintings or the Van Dykes uh, uh, strutting mm. and posing through their canvases. Yes. Exactly. I think this is as much a part of masculinity as any other. Vanity, elegance, um, dandyism. Uh, this, this is not connected to sexual ambiguity necessarily, it can be, but I mean this was considered part of masculine presence for mm -hmm. centuries, mm -hmm. you know. So. Right, so maybe they do get the joke, but the joke's on us and it's being turned around. <laughs> we assume that any man who spends more than five minutes putting his clothes on in the morning must be gay, but and in fact... There might not be. But what about being, choosing, being, choosing or being told to cho choose uh, the pose of a woman rather than a, a, a powerful figure of authority, a male figure of authority on a horse with a, mm. with a sword? I mean, what is that? What's happening here? Yes. <laughs> that would pose a, a challenge to the identity. Um, but or would it? I mean, it's, it's, it's in a way it's, it's saying uh, these are images, uh, these are compositions that work. These are from the canon, it's a Giotto. Giotto didn't ma paint many uh, exclusively um, male subjects, as usually. You really think Hindu Wiley is that naive? That, uh, well, it's, it's a question of whether the sitters are that naive in a way. Well, it is, it, in, in this yes. show for, for sure. Because, um, but then I began well, by saying that I inquire into their faces and I find their faces really interesting. They all are, um, they have their worlds within worlds. Each one of these faces is, and you, and you try and 
I, I find myself trying to decipher this, a sense of vulnerability, sometimes hurt almost, um, spiritual kind of um, soaring. There's defiance, maybe an anger in some others. There's pride. There's all these different kinds of things going on in these faces. And well, that's, that's an interesting point. You're, 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 you're pointing to the, to the diversity of this show, but I would ask Linda and the other David whether they think perhaps it's a, a, a slight limitation of this show that, that so many of the images in the back room are so ubiquitous, that there's a, a very strict format that's followed, and um, this is something of a formula in this show. Is that, uh, did that strike you as a limitation, uh, Linda? No, I thought this was a, a convention that is followed throughout, and what makes this, the variations interesting is that there is uh, a convention as in more traditional art, and then he works around it. And that makes the difference stand out. Yes. Hmm. Might have been stronger if it hadn't been so densely hung in that room, because it really was bo ro ro row of those, um, those portraits. Right. Uh, that was a bit of the effect I felt in the gallery. Okay. Well, the others are suggesting that look more closely, and the, the, the yeah. differences yeah. are more acute than the similarities, but I, I felt to be honest, sameness was, was a feature. Anyhow, um, the audience will have a chance uh, in a short while to, to share their views on uh, Kehinda Wiley as well, but let's move on now to our next uh, presentation. There may be one or two more Wiley stills. No, I got the timing right. Great. A little light, please. So Maya Lin is an artist we primarily associate with public projects. Her career, as we all know, launches with the Vietnam Memorial, controversial, um, but, but very influential 
public sculpture. Um, and uh, she's, uh, the, the works that we see in this show uh, relate in some thematic ways to recent, uh, much publicized, celebrated uh, commissions, such as uh, her work at Storm King. Um, are we getting the essence of Maya Lin when we see this exhibition in her gallery, uh, uh, David Carrier? Or are we, um, are we perhaps seeing sort of preparations or souvenirs of something, mm -hmm. the, the main event being elsewhere? What was your sense? I haven't seen it elsewhere, but I thought this show was just about perfect. It fitted the space wonderfully. I thought the way that the three different pieces worked in that enormous hangar was just wonderful. I mean, I guess that street and even that very building has that echo of Sarah and the torqued ellipses there. And I thought these just stood up wonderfully. I was just was really blown away by this particular oh, show. Fantastic. That's a very strong, positive, affirmative view. Um, is it one, uh, David Brody, that you wholeheartedly endorse? Um, no, I'm, I regrettably have to disagree with it in every particular. <laughs> no, it, I, not in every particular, because it did look good. It looks, it looks like art. Uh, it looks a lot like a lot of other kind of art that I've seen. It even looks a lot like a you know, the two by four piece. Looks a lot like a Tarek Donovan uh, piece that was done in that same space a couple of years ago. In paper cups. With paper cups, uh, but the same kind, of, same kind of rising and falling, waving, mm -hmm. bell curve kind of uh, stochastic uh, kind of expression of some kind. Um, I, 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 I love Myelin as an architect. I wish that she would be given the entire Times Square uh, walk, you know, arcade to do that piece, that, that uh, you know, bell curve rising shape out of permanent materials that were large and would you know, relate the, the scale of the pedestrian to the scale of the cosmic and the scale of the civic po polity and all of that stuff. I think she is a brilliant problem solver, as architects should be. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's uh, a brilliant uh, engager with different kinds of um, narratives uh, in, in making physical, concrete things that people can interact with. That's what architecture does really well. She's a problem solver. She gives us a relationship to, of scale, and she um, um, gives us a sense of order. Mm. She, she probes what the, what the edge of order is and then gives us, comes back and gives us a sense of order. That's what architecture does. Art does something entirely different, almost opposite. It, it doesn't solve problems. It makes problems. It doesn't uh, give us a sense of cosmic order. It sort of contains the cosmic within the ego and confuses us about the scale of which is which. It doesn't... Um, um, you know, the word pedestrian is actually a good word when you're talking about architecture. It's a bad word when you're talking about art. And this show is pedestrian in every respect, uh, except that it's not big enough. If it was outside and big, it would be fantastic. Right. So um, that's a sort of spin, in a way, on the old joke from the Catskills of the food being inedible in such small portions. This, was, uh, this wasn't art, and there wasn't enough of it. Right. Uh, uh, Linda, um, uh, those are two quite diverse uh, uh, verdicts, in fact, as diverse as verdicts can be. Um, uh, what, are you, what, did, what was your sense of the show? Were you, were you satisfied or not? Well, I thought it was, you know, technically brilliant and bland. I thought it was mm -hmm. sort of boring. Right. And mm. partly, <laughs> um, partly, I guess it's scale. I felt these were things that cried mm -hmm. for a big scale outdoors somewhere else, not being cramped into a 
uh, gallery, but also it's because I, um, I engage with geology. If you're going to do the earth, you better be geological is my... And this is totally lacking in the specificity of the earth's being and the earth's surface. Mm. I remember all my field trips in my freshman geology course, which absolutely opened my mind in a way that no other course, however humanistic, uh, could have opened it up. I remember the idea that there are old rivers and young rivers, and that cliffs and valleys and declivities and surfaces have a specific texture and a specific temporal being and a specific past above all. Um, and I get none of this. This is all abstracted from, from what Earth is about, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I want anything about the Earth to engage with its specificity, its hardness, its softness, its garniferousness, its uh, all those wonderful things that a science like geology teaches us that turn into blandness when generalized by art. Right. Yeah, David Carrier, I need to hear more from you because in the way I phrase my question and yeah. the way David Brody and Linda yeah. made their comments, it's very clear that we were kind of not satisfied. I mean, David Brody mentioned um, uh, uh, the, the Tara Donovan. I was definitely brought put, put into mind of, say, Phoebe Washburn with her use of in her early work of, mm -hmm. of segments, but just so exquisite, so handmade, so, so using the right materials for what she wanted to, to get across in those early installations. These look like um, it was almost phoned in, some of these works. Uh, they don't look fabricated by her. They don't look like they're made uh -huh. with love. They look like they're models for something we should be looking at somewhere else at some point. But you, you, you're comparing them to Sarah. So um, what about the material quality? Yeah, that's interesting because in a way this relates to the previous show when you're talking about sources, where in the previous show the sources were old master portraits or paintings, and here the sources are to be geological. And it's true that with the Milan, I mean, I read the wall labels and da-da-da, they had this geological source, but I have to admit that when I looked at them, I thought, da-da-da, okay, so there's this underwater structure that she had for those wire constructions, but so what? I mean, I enjoyed them simply on their own sake, and in a sense, if those wall labels hadn't been there, it wouldn't have affected the way I saw them. So I didn't have the Linda's worry about the geological. Well, Linda, spe Linda specified her worry yeah. by mentioning the geological, yeah. but I suspect Linda would have been worried even without the geological, simply because the work was, in her mind, boring. But, um, mm -hmm. So if the work you're saying is interesting, never mind the source. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, those, for instance, slatted uh, wood pieces, um, the contoured works uh, in, the, in the, the, mm -hmm. the, the last sculpture we're looking at, um, any of the works which are, are, are to do with waves and the representation of waves, um, uh, what, what sort of visceral quality do you, um, impact does, does that wood chip, wood block have on you? What, or what, why, why did she choose that material? Is that the best material? I guess it's banal material, it's ordinary material, it's unwaterly, and so we have waves out of the wood. I mean, I thought it was some kind of ecological idea. I wasn't worried a lot about the material. I just liked the feel. I liked the fact that there were the three works in that space. Mm -hmm. And instead, I thought that there was a sort of interesting variation. You come in, and there's the 
enormous one, and then you go back, and there's the wire construction on the left, and then you can walk through the other one. And I thought the, the three was a sort of nice arrangement. Right, right. Uh, Linda, do you, do you feel David Brody uh, went too far in sort of saying this is not art, essentially, this is um, architectural models, and this, this belongs to a different paradigm, or...? Well, I think it's very hard to say at this particular moment in history that something is not art. You might say it would do better as something else. Let's uh, right. moderate I, that. That's, I that think is that's what, I did what you say, were yes. trying Thank to say, yes. that it would uh, assume a different kind of relation to the spectator mm -hmm. if it were mm -hmm. on a more architectural scale. And I think that's perfectly plausible since I very much like her monumental work, yes. including the, the Yale Monument, which I think is extraordinary, yes, and so it is, on. It isn't just a question of scale. Um, mm. Scale is yeah. woven into it, but I mean, what I, I'm not sure if I expressed it clearly, but uh, I think it's really, I think architects and artists are coming from it from two different directions. And if you look at uh, paintings of Corbusier, which are mm. perfectly nice, but mediocre, or the sculptures of Calatrava, these uh, are genius architects, sculptures of Calatrava, which were, uh, looked really dated and kind of um, naive, uh, you know, there's, there's a sort of a structural problem going on here between two ways of thinking that just don't, you know, Maya Lin is very clear about having two different practices. She has her studio practice, she has her architectural practice, you know, and she's had them side by side. Mm -hmm. And in her mind, they're two different things. But I, but I, if, she, if her art practice, if she wants to call it that, uh, it doesn't get to, I mean, if her models are coming out of Saul LeWitt, you know, she doesn't get it simple enough to really get into the, like, the really fundamentals of, the fundamentals of number theory or the fundamentals of philosophy. Mm. She sort of leaves it at a place where it can be quite beautiful or, or not, but, uh, you know, it's not, it's not earth-shakingly beautiful. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, audience... Uh, we've, we've discussed Genda Wiley and we've discussed Maya Lin and um, I propose to separate your comments into the two artists we've looked at rather than just yo-yo from one to the other. Um, so let's, uh, let's start with Maya Lin as that's what we just mentioned here last. Anybody want to jump to the fence of Maya Lin or a, sh a challenge? Some? And there is a roving mic which uh, San uh, Sandy is going to take around so that we record you for posterity, even if you feel you have a perfect opera singer's projection, please wait for the mic because we'd love to save your words for posterity. Lady at the back, yes, back right corner. Um, I thought Myelin's piece was, actually I, I don't particularly think the one that we're looking at right now is helping as an installation. I think that one, for me, looks more like a model. Whereas I think if the, and I don't agree with you that you think the installation was, was working, because when you walk in, you see this, this beautiful wood piece, and then the wire behind it, and they don't really talk to each other. I think it would have been better if it would have been in a, in a different space, without this piece in front of it, but just the, the dome, the wooden dome, which I thought was really, you know, or the, the hill, the wooden hill I thought was actually very successful and I think the wave wire piece is actually very complicated and beautiful and I think it's getting lost in the corner of the exhibition space. Yes. Um, thank you. Yes, gentlemen, just where you came from. 
I just want to say that uh, I think the name of the show of Mayalin is the way, different ways to see the earth. Is that the name of, uh, there's a title of the exhibition, correct? Yeah. Which I don't recall. Three ways of looking. Three ways of looking at the earth. Yes. It's, uh, I'm an architect and basically that's the way we look at things. You know, she's actually telling you how we look at things. We look things in smaller scale and we look at things in slices and we look at things in contours. In my opinion is very clear that she's telling you this is the way I look at the earth. Whether it needs to be outside or not, it doesn't really matter. I think she explained very well three different ways that architects look at the earth. Uh, I, and I think it should be criticized from that point. And uh, I, I understand it looks like trap in there, but we look at things in scale. We can't look at things. If you want to look at things at real size, you have to go outside. Yeah, but it, really the problem is that it's in a, in a very prestigious art gallery, and it's being presented as art. That's, mm -hmm. that's the issue. It's interesting to think of this concept of yes. models here. I mean, a few years ago in the National Gallery of Washington, there were those big models mm. of Italian cathedrals. And you, those are clearly models, and you can like them, but I mean, they're mm -hmm. just the largest model. But this, I mean, it's interesting, maybe ask both my co-panelists, I mean, I've seen these as models rather than autonomous sculptures. I mean, is that, was that clearly your sense, both of you? Well, no, she wouldn't say that. I mean, she doesn't call these models. Yeah. Uh, she calls them sculpture. And, you know, so that's the end of discussion, I guess. Yeah, I see. But they're lacking autonomy to your way of... Um, yeah, they're just, as, as art, yeah. they don't interest me. As p potential models for potential uh, public ar public mm -hmm. architectural landscape mm -hmm. pieces, they yeah. could be very interesting. There are countless artists out there who make wonderful sculpture that is basically in taxonomy a, a model i mean they 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 use the equip they use the same materials that an architect might use to make a model um but they use models to make art and so that i don't think i think we can go get into a blind alley uh of, of worrying about uh you know whether it's a model or not um mm -hmm. it, it's a question of uh, whether it a a actually engages us as art or not um, yes, gentleman there. With the um, I think that she has a problem with scale as an artist. I think that if you look at the piece she did at Storm King, the photographs that we saw of it in the Times when she did the... You saw the photographs and I thought, God, I really want to go see this piece because it looks like a tremendous piece. And when I actually got up on the piece and the way it was set in the landscape and you had to look down on it, it didn't have the scale it needed to... Even though it was gigantic, it, there was something off on the scale. I think the same problem is holding true with this exhibition is that as an artist, she has a problem with scale. As an architect, I agree with you, she's a brilliant architect. She's not a brilliant sculptor, and it's because of scale. I had the same experience at Storm King. Right. Okay, good. Um, unless, uh, unless there's someone else in the audience who's got something very positive to say about Myelin, um, we will move on to... Uh, what the audience has to say about Kehinda Wiley. Um, yes, lady here, uh, wait for the mic. Thank you. Um, I have a hip-hop loving son who during one period of his life not only took on the verbal slang of hip-hop, but the hand gestures, the walk, 
the whole thing. And what I saw in these photographs were many of the hand gestures, the language of the hand gesture of hip hop, which came right out of these old paintings. And that kind of dialogue was so interesting to me that uh, Wiley had, had looked at these old paintings and said, man, that looks just like, you know, a dude walking down the street doing a hand gesture. And um, I think that that's something you guys missed. Yes, and it's a crucial uh, riposte to the notion of, of it being it's that yeah. significant that the, the male uh, hip-hop artists are taking female poses, say, from a Giotto painting. If, I mean, you can afford to let your guard down about gender if you've found a correlation between contemporary hip-hop and an old master gesture. That's, that's in itself a brilliant observation. Thank you. Yes. Yes, my, my question is, um, is Kinsey Wiley's, are his paintings and photographs, can they be considered feminist? Is there a feminist critique? Is there a feminist critique in Kahinda Wiley's work? Uh, is, is, is a question. Uh, we don't. Um, we, we can take questions, um, but we can also take it as a as a comment. Um, I'm going to suggest we we ponder it as a comment, and take another comment. Well, I'd say something. Oh, yes, you'd like to say something, please. I think there's queer critique. I think it has. It's much more connected to queer theory and the whole direction of, uh, what should I say, queer uh, critique of both popular and high culture. I mean, this is a very developed body of criticism now. And I think that the Kahinda uh, Wiley can't really be thoroughly understood in its contemporary context without a kind of queer theory background. Feminist, I don't know, but I mean queer, yes. Yeah. I, I don't know if this phrase has, has had popular coinage, but uh, it, it occurs to me that you could talk about the gay gaze yeah. of this show, what he's imposing on those, on those young men. Mm. Right. Bearing in mind, yes, okay. Late at the back. I'm really shocked to hear you say that about gay theory about Kahindi. Because first off, he's totally ripped. He's not gay. And you're missing um, his completely international focus of how he makes his backgrounds. And I'm, I don't know if you know how he makes his paintings now. He has workshops in four different countries. And he gets certain patterns, like the flower patterns. And he'll have like painters in India do it. And then he'll have painters in India do old master backgrounds, and then he'll go to China, and he'll have painters there make sort of Turkish backgrounds, or, you know, he's, I've talked to him about this, and what he's really working with is a globalism, and how signs and symbols get messed up when you have sort of studio painters from different cultures painting his backgrounds. He doesn't paint his own paintings, except for the faces, you know that. I, I hope you know that. So I don't understand, personally, the gay thing. I don't say it's a gay thing. Queer <laughs> theory is not identical with gay. Yeah, but That I has to yeah. be clearly understood. It means a kind of rejection yeah. of either or gender ideas. 
and uh, uh, understanding a, a kind of globalization of gender, if you will, so that um, you don't have to say it's, uh, it, it's feminist, it's not feminist, it's queer. And I, I don't know, he doesn't have to know whether he's doing it or not, but I read it. <laughs> No, he doesn't. I mean, the artist isn't the absolute authority on what you're seeing. Well, I mean, that's absolutely gay not. art. He's a pretty ripped. He isn't making gay making art. Gay. That was not yeah. gay art. That's no, not well, the term I used. Don't, don't, Queer, Donald, which is quite different. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Thanks very much. I mean, that comes back to sort of the crucial issue of intention. I mean, you don't uh, for, for the art to have uh, significance within a discourse of queer theory it doesn't have to be a gay intention by the artist. I think that's the point that Linda has, has, has made there. Yes? Hi, I just want you to know the second image is Micheline Thomas. Did you know that? You go clockwise, the second image is Micheline Thomas, the artist. Mm. Oh. Yeah, it's no, we a, didn't. That's, thank you. That's, uh, yes, and also, um, I live on Christopher Street for a very long time, and I go into the gallery, and all those faces were familiar to me. And these are kids on the street. He actually asked kids to pose and go into a studio. So, I mean, I, I loved, I couldn't stop laughing. I mean, he, had a, he has a great time with art history, and I love that. And in fact, after I saw that, I had a lot of the kids go to the, go to the gallery and take a look. So, I mean, I just love art because it's just, it was a new way of looking at something. And I thought it was fantastic. And I actually was lucky enough to buy a piece. Oh. <laughs> Congratulations. Excellent. Good. Okay, um, I think we're ready now to move on to the second half of our program um, and to look at our uh, next show, uh, which is uh, Chris O'Feely at David's Winner. And uh, here it is.
Great, cool. Okay, little light, please. Thank you. Uh, sometimes it happens here at the review panel that we, when we get round to looking at uh, an artist, it just uh, we we elect to be looking at uh, a, a side glance at an artist. I mean, you know, we we sometimes you're looking at work which is um, crucial uh, and very typically representative of what that artist is all about. And I think this is a case where we're we're getting um, a glimpse at a, a less known aspect of a the visual thinking of an artist best known to, her, to us for his uh, very uh, uh, chromatically intense and um, uh, uh, use of uh, uh, exotic materials um, uh, such as cow dung, uh, sorry, elephant dung, and, uh, and, and, and very potent images, to, to seeing an artist, uh, David Brody, um, in quite a, um, a, a distilled, refined, um, uh, streamlined inquiry into um, um, into something that we wouldn't immediately think of him necessarily of walking into the gallery. Um, uh, were you were you surprised to see this body of work, or did it did it on reflection make sense of thoughts you may have already had about uh, Chris Ophelia? Um Well, I was I was disappointed to have this show to talk about his work because I love his paintings. Uh, I, I really love the color. I love the contrast between the seemingly sort of loopy, almost lazy, broad lines and the incredible industriousness and passion of the way he you know, complicates the surface. All, all that stuff, you know, I, I think his paintings for me were almost a new kind of beauty that I, I hadn't even imagined before when I first saw them. And the last show, which had more some experiments, also enthralled me quite a bit. But this drawing show seems to me, uh, you know, about average on a par or maybe not as good as a lot of really uh, high bar contemporary drawing that's going on right now from uh, James Sienna and Dan Zeller, who some of these images almost directly suggest to people in the room like um, Sarah Walker and Emily Chang and Lori Ellison and plenty of other people uh, who you can find at you know, galleries like Susan Inglid or Valerie McKenzie or in the Progi flat files. I mean, there's a lot of really amazing topographic abstract doodling going on right now. And that's what this show is. You know, it, it's, I appreciate the strategic sort of theme and variations, quality of it, he has the three elements, he varies them in different ways in each piece, you know, the, the, the filled in uh, Afro-marginal heads, as he calls them, and the actual margins of the paper, which sometimes intrude into the middle, sometimes on the edge, sometimes the sort of clamshell uh, uh, concentric circles peter out into like a you know a, a desert river landscape. Sometimes they go into fog. All these different things can happen, and it's and it's great. But you know that this the quality, that insouciant quality that I find in his paintings in his hand here, writ small, looks more like you know laziness than insouciance to me. It's just not that intense, you know. And this kind of work has to be intense. The bar is very high for intensity. Right. And you know it just seems like it's being puffed up. You know, it's a mm -hmm. gallery one Zwirner show of a minor body of work. Mm -hmm. Linda, is that fair? No, <laughs> it isn't. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's fair because it's what you think, but I think exactly the opposite. I think this is uh, important work, beautiful work, moving work. It brings out, um, it seems to me, the formalist uh, in Chris Ophelia, and yet it's not formalism. 
It's filled with a kind of spiritual energy, I think. And the uh, delicate passage, I mean, using um, graphite as a medium itself already tells you something about his seriousness. He's not just using a plain old pencil. He's, he's getting all the guts out of graphite, so to speak. The delicacy is unbelievable. I keep thinking of Federigo Zucchero, who in the 16th century called Disegno Senio de Dio, the sign of God. Uh, that drawing had this kind of transcendent quality. And I find that in these works, they're so formally elegant, they make me look at them over and over again, both for their differences in tonality and shape and position, the fact that they're, they do go in a series. They really engaged me uh, in a way, and I followed his career quite, quite, you know, consistently. And he did a, another drawing, big drawing show before this. But I think these are absolutely terrific as a series. And um, they, they engage all my formal passion for line on surface and color and non-color on surface. Oh, David Carrier, that, that, that's, uh, that's an interesting way. Are you yeah. going to offer us a synthesis of such yeah. disparate views? <laughs> no, uh, different view. I had no idea how these would have been connected with his paintings, but after about 12 seconds in the gallery, I ceased to care. I thought these were fabulous. I thought they were delicate. I thought, you know, art historically, it's Barnett Newman meets Vato. I thought they were delicate. I thought the way they sprawled were beautiful. I mean, it's this funny kind of test. Is oh gee, I wish I had some money in the account. I would take one home. I thought they were wonderful. I thought they fitted the space. I thought it was a major show. I mean, I know that's an ambitious big gallery. So, uh, without having any particular idea about them, I thought, yeah, these just were wonderful aesthetic works. Mm. And and how about the? This, the implied theme of some of the titles. Do, do you feel, because he's an artist who's so associated with a, a contemporary take on issues of negritude, black identity, uh, he, he, he sort of takes those issues on almost as, uh, uh, from a, uh, as, as uh, resolutely in, in his way as, as, as Kahinda Wiley. Um, did, did you feel that this was um, about blackness in any way, or did you just want to get at it from a formal aesthetic point of view? I just wanted to say that usually we think of anything formally beautiful as white. That is assumed as the basis of formal enterprise. Well, you know, that black people are interested in pushing, you know, uh, identity and so on and so mm -hmm. on. And that, uh, in a way, formal forma, formalism without saying it, is a white enterprise. And I think what he shows, what Chris Ophelia shows is that it has nothing to do with, with color even, at, and yet there is, he does tell you that this is the work of a black artist. I mean, there, that's there. But the formal enterprise is not racially <laughs> segregated. It's it's a was I implying it was? I mean because no no I don't I don't no, think so. No. I don't think you were, but I no. do think that it is almost taken for granted when you do the history mm -hmm. of Western art or something that's all done mm -hmm. by white people and that. 
people of other races are doing something else. Well, but, but you, uh, I think I, I'm, I'm challenged by your use of the term formal. Do you, do you mean, uh, because, I mean, obviously craft is universal. Obviously being interested in um, uh, internal dynamics is a, is a universal thing. Otherwise we wouldn't have, we have yeah. art from every... Uh, uh, race and nationality at the Metropolitan Museum. No, no, but I so mean... So we're not... But, but when we use the word I mean. formal, we mean something I mean else. formalism, which is well, something formalism. else. That is not a universal category. That is something that, you uh, know, is uh, 20th century... Precisely. Yeah. So it's 20th century. White. So Well, yeah. only to the extent that uh, most 20th century artists happen to be white. Exactly. But uh, a black artist could address formalist issues if he or she wanted to. Yeah, but he's also raising the issue of his identity mm -hmm. as not white. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> yes, that's just that it. I mean, he is putting mm -hmm. those, uh, yeah. generating this topographical doodling mm -hmm. out of this very concrete um, icon of, yeah. of the Afro head, as he, or mm -hmm. the Afrocentric head, I guess, which is the implied you know, uh, opposite of the Afro-marginal drawings. Uh, just as, in very much the same way as Ellen Gallagher did before him, and so even that aspect of it doesn't seem that original to me. Well, that's surely a rich field that more than two artists could. No, could but I mean, but that was that was a signature of what mm. she was doing. She was making abstraction uh, and combining it with with these mm. icons that could be read in different ways, but they were clearly about race, mm. and um, and that was. That was the energy you, of the You work. mentioned the work of James Siena. Now, James Siena is a white artist, but in his work, which you could argue is formalist, you could also argue is highly anthropological. It's, it's, it's about global culture, and it's, it's in, it's, it's, it has a great deal to do with the, the pattern-making impulse that one sees more often and that one associates more immediately with non-white art than with white well, art. You know, Kid Hinda Wiley says something very interesting about this, because he says that when he was a student, <clears throat> it was always an issue that he was painting uh, black people. But it was never an issue when a white person painted a white person. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of something that we're stuck with. He, he, doesn't, he isn't uh, laying blame for that. He's saying that's just a condition that we have. And I think that's what Ophelia is saying, too. But both, both Linda and David Carrier are, are taken by and stressing and reveling in the um, the crafted formal beauty of this work, um, and um, it doesn't necessarily imply that they're ignoring the black identity issue of the work, which is has something I think to do with hair braiding uh, and is therefore racially specific. But I wonder if that's uh, if that's just a way of flattering the work, or if it's perhaps unrealistic about the intention of the work. But don't you think in each case that there are always things that you just don't know? I mean, you haven't seen everything. And in this case, sure, I wondered about the black identity, but I didn't know where to take it. I mean, I think with the kind of Wiley that, uh, you know, it was more in my face that, well, there were just things I didn't know at all. And I knew I was missing mm. something here. I was happy to just see these as wonderful drawings, thinking that there's a lot more just from his title mm. that I don't get. But I'll figure it out eventually. Mm. Someone will tell me. I'll read it. <laughs> yes, great. Let's move, I think, to our last show. A um, couple more stills to enjoy.
Thank you. Let's have some lights. Well, Linda, I found this to be a very resonant, powerful exhibition. Um, it had both uh, humor and great poignancy as well. Um, what do you feel? Do you feel it was a, a unified exhibition with a, 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 a strong theme, or do you feel that there were diverse uh, issues being explored in this work? I didn't find it a unified. I mean, if you could take a huge topic and say the body, or maybe <laughs> even the female body, but I did not feel it was a unified show, but that didn't make me find it mm. necessarily weak at all. I thought no. she was exploring different media, different forms of expression, multiples, single references to past feminist work like Louise Bourgeois' Femme Maison, which was an obvious uh, reference for that big uh, photograph of her, but a very different kind of work because it was three-dimensional. It was definitely herself. Um, of course, motherhood played a, a, a big role in some of it, but certainly not to me at all in that eyepiece, which I thought was probably the most powerful in the show, uh -huh. with that huge, whatever it was, ball and chain, ball and, chain uh, and the eye opening and closing to the incredible sound. So she was incorporating sound into mm -hmm. it too. Whether this is some, and, and then the peeing one was just marvelous, wonderful little, little, um, you know, you think of, you think of uh, what do you call those things? Gargoyles? Gargoyles. Mm. I mean, gargoyles are huge things that appear in, you know, melodramatic 19th century photography or, yes. <laughs> or whatnot. And here there are these dear little <laughs> cutesy gargoyles in series, and she can use them as a, a pea instrument, which I think is a very inventive notion. Well, in Indeed, a way, gargoyles are pea instruments. They help get the rain off the roof. Too. Well, they are, of course, <laughs> but um, they're particularly... They're pea instruments. They're wonderful <laughs> for men, but whoever thought of them for women? I mean, that's really inventive. Well, Janine has worked hard <laughs> in her performances she deserves a penis, don't you think? Uh, uh, David Brody, yeah. um, okay. did you feel that uh, did you feel that the most powerful work? What, what did you find any of the work powerful? And if so, what was the most powerful work? I, I, I did find it powerful, and I, I find her to be a consummate practitioner of the prevailing genre of international art, which is performo, photo, video, sculptural installation, or something like that. She is she's a master. She's an absolute master. She she weighs her terms perfectly. She finds the right materials. She, uh, you know, puts things together in just the right way that, that make an immediate impact. But then they also make you think afterwards for, for quite a while. I'm still thinking about these works. But the first piece, certainly the initial, the well, the the peeing piece, 
uh, is, strikes me pretty obviously as a kind of uh, reclaiming of the Chrysler building as an icon from Matthew Barney <laughs> and restoring it to Margaret Bork White, who posed on those very eagles you know, with her, uh, um, her large format camera. And both what, you know, what Margaret Bork White was doing literally in you know, six, 50 stories above the, the pavement, endangering herself, we don't really know that Janine Antonia was endangering herself that much because we don't see where her feet are. But it's, it still seems a little bit scary to be up there. I think to be up there to either not tremble when you push the shutter or to be able to release your bladder and pee is a statement of a kind of poise, equipoise, mastery. Mm. And it's indirect. Uh, uh, rebuke to Barney's, you know, exerting, clinching, muscular kind of art. Uh, the next piece, however, the, uh, the one in the middle with the, with the video, the loud noise, seems to be like really, instead of fighting fire with water, as it were, fighting fire with fire. And, uh, you know, it's, I can make a piece that's more obnoxious and repulsive than the, anything that Bruce Nauman does, or that big lead ball, you know, is, uh, you know, you can imagine it being used to knock down a couple of torqued ellipses. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's a very mm -hmm. powerful piece. I mean, actually, if you're next door, if I went next door to Andrew Rosen to see this delicate uh, show of glass by, mm -hmm. you know, Zionette McElhaney, you can feel the walls vibrating <laughs> with that noise, and I'm like wondering, are these things going to creep off the shelf? Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a statement of macho, in mm -hmm. a way. There's much more complicated than that the more you think about it. Is that ball and chain the, the, the giver of blows or is it the receiver of blows? Mm. Uh, is, uh, is that eye really blinking in reaction to the, to the sound? We don't know that. There's plenty of, there's been a whole body of uh, video installation that's, that's meant to make us question the phenomenology of sound and image. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't know that it might be triggering the blows. And of course, in some sense it is because assuming that's her eye, she's the one that is causing this destruction to be done. And she's hiring a, an enormous crane and a crew and you know, getting insurance and doing whatever it takes to get this piece done. I mean, it's an enormous okay. enterprise. Uh, and, it's, and she shows us great restraint. Yes, great. And then the final uh, room is, is taking us to a different place, David Carrier, with the, in my opinion, the, 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 the zenith of this show, yeah. Yeah. that uh, yeah. her body suspended in her child's room, the dollhouse, the body right. penetrating the dollhouse. Right. Was that the, the climax of the show for you? No, but oh dear. I mean, I hate that we we're here. We're ending at this point, and I'm ending at this. This was a show I wanted to care about. I mean, I wanted to love. Uh, I kept trying, working hard on it's the exploration of the body as measure. I thought it would be a, a feminist take on the body. I didn't think the parts came together. I, I couldn't get it to work at all. I, but in a sense, I was haunted by it. it was really reinforced the idea, maybe I'm missing it completely. I even had strange dreams about it, which didn't, unfortunately, when I woke up, reveal it. I thought that the, the ball coming down and the wrecking ball, and I'm looking at the, uh, you know, at the eye blinking, I thought, oh, those poor people working in the gallery, they're, mm, they're hearing that all day. <laughs> so it didn't, I'm sorry, it didn't magically work for me. And even, mm -hmm. David, to take up in that last room, okay, the photo there is sort of version of Magritte, but then the two photos on the left and the one on the right, I didn't see how that added. So I wanted it to work. I couldn't get it to work. Hmm. Maybe it'll work tomorrow. Maybe I'll go back. Well, I, I, I encourage you to go back, because I, I found the, the last image, this image here, uh, yeah. to be the, the climax of the show. 
Um, and I, I, I felt it's so often one goes around the galleries and sees huge photographs that could be just as good as a small photograph in a mm -hmm. book or you know, a reasonable 10 by 8 that's framed with a few other photographs. Mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a bit, um, you know, photographers probably hate me for this, but I, I, I kind of think the photograph works pretty well in a book um, mm -hmm. or a magazine. Uh, it usually works a lot better there. Or, um, but this is a, a, a case where I said, no, this is the scale for this image. It couldn't be, it couldn't be a millimeter smaller. It's, it's hmm. really it's has this iconic um, sculptural presence. And I just absolutely was mesmerized by the interaction. Um, it, it did what, to me, go back to our first show, Gehinda Wiley did in quotes this, uh, the, the bodies of those men against the pattern and decoration. Mm -hmm. That was sort of um, a very forced kind of binary opposition. This seems to me a very organic opposition of uh, uh, a real personal presence and, and mm -hmm. artifice. The artifice oh. is not artifice from art history or from theory. It's the artifice of a child's constructed world and therefore mm -hmm. has a whole layer of poignancy and evocation that this, uh, you know, and I, I don't have I don't have a codified reading of this mm -hmm. work. I'm, in fact, I I feel as as a as a man who's never going to be a mother that it would be trivialising and and uh, offensive to say, oh yes, this means X, Y, and Z. But just the the, the sense of the body in a straight jacket mm -hmm. and uh, the the cruciform uh, presentation of the body and the 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 innocence and otherwise of a mother in a child's room is, is very uh, resonant with possibilities mm -hmm. for me. Um, Can I? Yes, please do. Um, well, Linda mentioned, of course, it references Louise Bourgeois' Femme It also references, I think, her spider imagery, mm -hmm. which she owns mm -hmm. as much yeah. as anything. And it references Frida Kahlo with that kind of straight, you know, the corset, uh, uh, and also the sort of the Catholic surrealism that's weaving throughout this piece, like the, the doll's house within the doll's house, and, mm -hmm. and the way that the open mm -hmm. um, altar piece of the doll's house echoes the bay windows, and even there's the trim on that little door on the bottom right in the doll's house is the exact same kind of trim as it's on the bay windows. So that's kind of like this twilight zone-y occultism that's going on here. There's a lot of layers. It is, it is a, a, um, a piece that doesn't resolve, doesn't, it isn't crisp the way the other two pieces are, but it is an unforgettable image. Uh, my, my question about it really is, it, it seems to come on pretty strong as a creed occur about domestic captivity. And, you know, given her feminist chops, it would seem to be like she's, you know, making a statement about uh, child, you know, unequal child rearing roles. Uh, is there another way to read this? Uh, if, if that's what she's saying, you know, I hate to put it this way, but if I was, you know, living in a squat in Bed-Stuy, a mother raising a child and trying to feed him and or her and trying to make art, and I saw this, I would say, wow, she's living in a pretty nice place. You probably can afford a lot of housekeeping and mm -hmm. nannies and all of that. So what is she complaining about? Well, well I don't think you... it's a purely personal <laughs> rendition. <laughs> I think she's uh. commenting on the status maybe of motherhood uh, in general, and part goddess, part victim, um, part pleasure, part constriction. You know, it's like any other choice. It involves a lot of different uh, positions and a lot of different emotional attitudes. And I think that's what makes this so interesting, mm -hmm. 
that you can't decide whether she's the goddess of motherhood or the prisoner of uh, taking mm -hmm. care of a child, and whether it's it's pleasure. I mean, she loves that little doll's house, mm. and uh, with its wonderful scale furniture. Mm -hmm. um, she picked out that rug. I mean, in theory. I don't know whether she did or not, but I'm, I'm talking about the imagery itself. So I think it has to do a lot with the ambivalence of motherhood rather than mm -hmm. making a particular stand against, for, et cetera. Mm. And that's why it's interesting. I mean, I, I'm sure she, I know, and, or I'm sure she's an artist who will have um, political and moral uh, intentions behind the work, but rather as David experienced in the myelin, I, I feel liberated to simply take this as a, a thing in itself and and relate on whatever's kind of formal level I, I choose. And for me, it's the there's a, there's a tenderness in mm -hmm. the in the photography that it's, it's, a, it's a crispness and a coolness for certain for sure. But the 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 devotion to detail is not a purely uh, technical or formal exercise, it seems to me to be integral to, to some, to some it, this is first and foremost I think a work about scale at a sort of phenomenal, phenomenological level. Mm. You know, it, it suggests Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, uh, eat the, me. Yeah, <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> and and, uh, and a, I mean, a, a couple of other references that you could bring into it, uh, there's an Edward Albee play called Tiny Alice where the mm. model house becomes the sort of the, the primary mover of the play. Mm. Uh, it, uh, it also suggests, of course, a doll's house, uh, the yes. kind of proto-feminist uh, literary document. Um, so she's bringing as many things into this as she can. She's, she's casting a web. She's weaving a no, web of inferences, mm -hmm. and, and then they, both, they go both ways. I agree with Linda. It's, it's, you know, she's, she's obviously taking responsibility for being in that situation, whatever it is, whatever the, cap the level of captivity is. Uh, and she's like Louise Bourgeois spiders. She's she's both the uh, prey and the prayer. Mm -hmm. And you get sense. there after the wrecking ball. I think that's part of the effect of this. That then mm -hmm. you're home and you're you're safe. I that's mean, you're true. Caught in this the, the child's room there after seeing the destruction on the street. Something about being in an interior there. And ball, the word ball and chain to describe that wrecking ball. You know, that's uh, an interesting term in this context, perhaps. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that perhaps they, they, the, the three zones of this show do begin to uh, uh, yeah. lead one to the other after all. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's have your responses. And as before, we'll, um, uh, we'll start with Antonia and then move back to Ophelia. So, um, responses, thoughts, feelings about Janine uh, Antonia's work. Wait for the mic, if you would. How's the mic doing? Yep, Sandy is coming down the aisle with the mic. Uh, yes, thank you. That's good. Uh, one about the image on the screen. Um, the, the image on the screen, it seems to me the most stunning thing about it is the fact that she is off the floor. Um, Suspended, yes. And, and without that, if you imagine her standing on the floor and everything else being the same, it wouldn't work at all. I mean, that seems to be the critical thing. And the other thing seems to be that she has two vanishing points. One is the vanishing point of the white lines and the other is the vanishing point that's slightly below that. Of all the other perspective lines, the, the white lines on the rug, the lines on the floor, the lines on the bed, the lines on the wagon, which she's designed very deliberately to all go to a single vanishing point. 
So those two vanishing points of one-point perspective, one above one another, really amplify the, the shift between the two, the, the floating level and the level below that. Okay. My other comment that nobody mentioned, and, I don't, and when I was there, I kind of wondered about it myself, is the ball and chain is lead, which she intended, she, she went to great lengths to make lead as opposed to steel, I guess they're usually made out of, balls and chains, and lead is very soft. So the whole idea was that when the ball and chain which she actually took and had hit these buildings, the, the ball was dented when it hit the buildings. Uh -huh. So the ball was vulnerable and affected well, by I, the hitting of the buildings I tried in a to way say that, that a real whacking ball would not be. Yeah, I tried to say that it was uh, unclear if it was the giver of blows or the receiver of blows. That's, it, what, I, that's it, what I was talking about was the indentations in it. In the so it, it seemed to me that it, it, mm -hmm. it, from what has been said that that wasn't clearly mm -hmm. When she talked about it, she said that was the whole point in it, practically. Right. was the vulnerability of the ball, and yet nobody has talked about the vulnerability Great. of the ball level as being yes. analogous to the vulnerability of the eye. Yes, of the eye. Uh, can you pass it to the old lady in front of you? She, she also had her hand up. Yes. Uh, I think talking about surrealism, uh, as if this uh, artist came out of the, a movie or several movies of Jan Swankmeyer. And everything here, I, I'm sure she saw his pieces. He, and uh, it is a, maybe playing upon uh, his art, which is amazing, amazing. Whoever saw him, uh, or whoever didn't see him, should. Thank you for that tip. A uh, lady behind the lady, or next to the lady who first spoke. Um, oh, just while you're doing that, I mean, Svankmeyer's uh, obsessive theme is Alice in Wonderland, so it does mm -hmm. come into it. Um, I just wanted to mention there was a photograph in the beginning that um, it was a very intimate kind of square. I think it was square, small photograph of her daughter mm -hmm. feeding her belly button. Yes. And I thought that that was yes. a very important mm -hmm. image and I just mm -hmm. wanted to bring it to everybody's attention. So. Yes, thank you. Um, uh, a few more on this side and then we'll work back to around the sides. Um, Ellen in the front row. Well, as a practicing feminist from the 70s, I will tell you that my first impression was that it's a reenactment of the dollhouse, woman's house, which was created in LA by Miriam Shapiro and Judy Chicago. Um, and that was all about um, the, you know, repression and entrapment in the home and breaking away from it. And I find that that's my immediate reaction to this. Secondly, um, the photograph uh, with the gargoyles is also, the, the, I immediately thought of Linda Bengalis and her... You thought of what, sorry? <laughs> Linda Bengalis. Linda Bengalis. Ah, yes. And her reaction to Robert Morris's, uh, you know... Her famous ad in Art Forum where yeah, she posed right. with, a, with yeah. a... So, I mean, I think those are definite aid. references mm. to that, mm -hmm. whether, it's, mm -hmm. <laughs> whether it's true or not, in my mind, anyway. Right. Oh, well, okay. Uh, the reference I got right away was... 
sort of um, was the exquisite corpse. Aha, uh -huh, yes, the surrealist game of, of folding and... Has it divided that way three parts? So that would struck me. The cadavre exquis. Thank you very much. A very good reference. Excellent. I concur with that. Gentleman on leaning against the wall, if we could pass it to him. There, in this piece, there is a, a technical error that became the tipping point for me for this piece for becoming very successful to becoming unsuccessful. And that is in that in this room, there are three other images all focused on this spider web. And she has emphasized that again by placing herself in this same spider web position. But in the larger image, you can't actually see the spider web at all. And it became a, no, you cannot. I've, I've gone three times actually and ex examined it. You can see the spider, but you cannot see the web. So the spider is actually floating on top of her knee. And so for me, that became, it became a, a, such a large distraction that it took a, away the power that, of what she's trying to reproduce and the emphasis that she has in the room. And I just became, I guess, disenchanted by the fact that uh, you know, there's this failure, what I see as a technical failure. Well, I'm sorry about your disenchantment, but you could go from this large uh, photograph to the smaller ones which have that, that detail and then allow the one to inform the other. You could also infer that since the spider's not directly on her knee, that it must be suspended by something such as a web, if you want to. Um, when, I, when I went to see the show, I didn't like it at first because it seemed such an obvious sort of identity politics. It's um, a series of, of works, and it, it just, I said, I felt like I didn't need to have um, someone's personal, you know, you know, problems with being a mom, like in Park Slope or something, um, sort of, you know, portrayed as art. Um, but, it, but it's interesting hearing this because I'm, I'm now seeing, and it seemed very disjointed, but now I'm kind of seeing it as, minus the, the, her daughter feeding her through her umbilical cord, as almost this um, progression from being a single woman sort of artist producing these, like, like looking, being on top of the world in a sense, and producing these babies, these gargoyle, these artwork babies, <laughs> and feeling very powerful, and then moving to maybe being married, and the sort of female gaze, and the like, who is, where is the power now? Kind of, is she the ball and chain? Is she, you know, this problem, or is she this really powerful? Uh, has she somehow? I don't just sort of where is her power and again is she the destroyer or the giver and then then this final stage of being a mom but being um, like she's put herself in her own house like she has done this to herself and yet she's finding a way to make art still within this new stage of her life. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, good. I think that deals with Antonio very uh, nicely. Um, Chrysophili. Um, did, 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 we, did we do justice to Ophelia? Is there some comments that people would like to share on Chris Ophelia's drawings or work in general? Yes, lady. Uh, okay. Hi, uh, my name is Lori Ellison, and I was at uh, Skowhegan in 1993 with Ellen Gallagher. And when I was in graduate school at Tyler following going to Skowhegan, I started doodling on notebook paper, and I definitely thought of Ellen when I was doing it. 
Um, also, uh, I went to see uh, Chris Ophelia's work was also in a show with PS1 with Leila Ali, who was also at Skowhegan in 1993. And he was doing um, the motif of the Afro heads. And the faces are, I, I, I guess, I, I mean, uh, I did grow up in DC and James Sienna did too, but uh, I made a, a mix called W-O-O-K. And <laughs> I, it just brings back uh, great memories for me, so. Mm -hmm. Thank you, that's great to have a, a personal view on uh, things. How about some uh, analysis of the work from a member of the audience? Yes. Uh, gentleman here. Hi there. Um, I just wanted to get back to the point that you introduced um, uh, with regard to Chris Ophelia and the shift from the aesthetic that we're most familiar with um, in terms of his work, the more kind of Africanized tropes um, in his you know, earlier colorful paintings versus this new, um, <laughs> these new drawings. And I initially had the uh, same impulse that I was disappointed. I felt there was a kind of, uh, he had perhaps in progressing it into a sort of the mid-career stage, he had um, felt, you know, he felt necessary to adopt this more serious or studied style and kind of um, move away from being um, typecast as, you know, an Africanized artist. But um, can we also maybe see it as uh, a feely consciously um, trying to um, get away from being, you know, typecast or pinned down to, to uh, you know, being an Afro-Caribbean artist and kind of reclaiming his position as just an artist. Well, then um, wouldn't yeah. you want to not put in the little Afro heads if that's what your intention was? Well, I know, but the, like we said, they're, they're more they're more formalized in these works. They're, they're, the fact that they are kind of reminiscent of a African or Afro heads, I, I, don't, I didn't think that that encroached so much in the work. I, I still saw them as kind of more formal, you know, pared down. Well, they are that, but they're also to be read as, as iconography, and you, you can't avoid that. It's very much the central part of the work. All, all of the formal variation comes out of that paradox of, the, mm -hmm. of that icon versus treating it as an icon, tree as, as a form. And he insists on that in all of these drawings. I, I don't think you can say he's trying to move away from being uh, you know, an, an Afrocentric artist by being an Afro-marginal -marg artist, if you want. <laughs> okay. But I, th I just want to add that you can, you can be an anything-centric artist and still engage in a formal discourse. I don't see why it has to be either or. I think that's what he's pointing mm -hmm. out, that you don't have to choose. Mm -hmm. You can be as African or as feminist or as anything you want and still engage in inventive formal practice. It doesn't have to be a propaganda you know, mural. It but as you, as, you said about, as you said about Wiley and queer theory, one could now say about Ophelia and uh, yes. formalist precision that even if it wasn't his, even if his intention was to only to deal with uh, African identity, the, the drawings that he's make has he, he's made have the potential, as um, David Carrier and your response to it uh, vindicates, to be uh, in, yes. uh, internally formal Absolutely. and formalist. And I'm not denying in any way that you can have it both ways. I, I love that. I mean, I understand that's the purpose of the work. I understand what he's about, and I think he does it very well. I just don't think he does it extraordinarily well, enough to justify the, the pressure that's put on this work by being shown in this way. There is a slight danger, though. Know, 
Oh, well, that's just the trap. He, he's had a long-standing drawing practice, and it's, it's always been mm. a central part of his work, and he was shown in Laura Hopkins' show in uh, the old MoMA in Queens thing. I mean, that was yeah. a very important show. I mean, he's been doing this for a long time. He does it very well. I, I like these pieces a fair amount. I just don't think they're extraordinary. But I think there's an issue that we've run through here earlier, which is that the artist's intention is very interesting, but that doesn't limit or constrain or determine how we look at it, hmm. partly because we may not know all of these details. We may come in and we may see it in some other way. And it seems to me this could run through all four of the examples tonight, hmm. that there's that kind of divergence. Maybe he or she has something very specific in mind, and yet we see it differently just because we have different knowledge or different limits or just different perspectives. Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah. Um, I just, uh, while you've been talking, and earlier I was thinking of an example of an uh, artist who uses African references, who is African American, and who's extremely formal in a continuously fascinating and subtle way, and that's Martin Purrier. Mm -hmm. right. You know? Uh, the, the, the show at MoMA was uh, completely unpredictable. Uh, the forms were, they were formal, and they continued to be fascinating, and you kept wanting to, to study them. Good. Thank you very much. Um, I think actually we're out of time, so I'll thank everybody, and I'll just take this moment to mention, as you should have seen leaflets that are going around, that our next meeting is on Friday, October the 23rd, where uh, Bill Berkson, Bridget Goodbody, and Robert Morgan join me to review Vincent Fecto, Alex Katz, Raphael Lozano Hemmer, and Yigal Ozeri. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. This is fun. Wow, that was fascinating. This is absolutely great panel. Thank you very yeah. much.